last time that we were together, we were looking at the, the life of John Huss. What I'd like to do tonight is take a few steps back and then take a big step forward. We began our study by looking at one of the, the most famous mottos of the Reformation. Anybody know what, what the most famous motto or one of the most famous mottos of the Reformation was? One of the mottos that we've talked about so far. Anybody remember it was the first lesson? Go ahead and say it out loud. I'd like to give you pronounce it. Anybody? Starts with a P. What's that? <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. Is that? Somebody had it? Post tenebras lux, which means what? After darkness, light. Oh, Patrick, it's okay, brother. You get it. I'll, I'll ask it the same exact way next week, and then you can answer. <laughs> we we began our study by looking at the the darkness of the medieval period in history, and we saw that the darkness that hovered over the people was really a darkness that was brought about because they were denied access to the Word of God, if you remember that. And we saw that how in the midst of this darkness, God raised up a man named John Wycliffe, who would be known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. Wycliffe would be one of the men, and it's important for us to, to recognize that, Wycliffe would be just one of the men. He was one, but he's one of many, I believe, as I've been reading through the history, that God would use to raise his voice for the cause of the gospel and for the cause of the word of God. His influence, the influence of John Wycliffe, it spread and reached the hearts of many people during his day. And that influence of John, of John Wycliffe is still affecting the hearts of, of many even today. And I think that's evident in the fact that when we taught on the teaching of John Wycliffe, many of your eyes, it was wonderful to see. It was just like light bulbs and, and, and fires being started in, inside of you guys. But the morning star of the Reformation inspired another voice for the cause of the gospel. A man by the name of John Huss, who would be known as, or who is also known as, the Goose. Amen. The Goose, or John Huss, also lifted up his voice, called the people back to the Word of God as their final rule of authority and faith. And Huss, just like John Wycliffe, stood in opposition to the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church. He called Rome and the Pope to submit to the word of God and was killed by Rome in the process. Let that sink into your minds. Feel the weight of that for just a moment. He was killed in the process. Before Huss was executed and burned at the stake, he said to his executioners, you may burn or cook this goose, but 100 years hence, there will come a swan whose singing you will not be able to silence. July 6, 1415, John Huss was executed for appealing to the word of God as his final source or rule of authority and faith. The city of Prague, 
We remember going back to Bohemia for just a moment. The city of Prague was in outrage over their hero, John Huss, being murdered in the way that he was. Out of this comes what is called the Hussite Wars, or the Bohemian or Hussite Revolution. Bohemian Wars, or the Hussite Revolution. The followers of John Huss literally took up arms and they fought against the Roman Catholic Church. All because their man, John Huss, was murdered in such a way. These wars lasted for 15 years. 15 years. They were, there were anti-Hussite crusades. There were peace agreements. And then radical Hussites would rise up again. But although these wars lasted just 15 years, and I shouldn't say just 15 years because 15 years is a long war. The aftermath of these wars was felt all the way until 1476. So we're, we're looking at at least 60 years of aftermath or of the, the repercussions of war still being felt. There was rampant poverty in Prague because of the results or because of the wars. All the while, now, history continues on. And if you've ever read the Bible, or when you ever read the Bible, do you ever think about, as you're reading maybe Paul, as you're reading maybe whatever Peter was writing, do you ever think about what was going on in China at this time? Or what was going on in the Americas at this time? Just so that you know, even though we're centraling our, our focus on one particular area, history throughout the world is still going on. Okay? For example, in 1476, at the end of the Hussite Wars, or at least at the end of the effects of the Hussite Wars, a man by the name of Christopher Columbus sails off and, and goes on one of his first journeys as he tries to reach China. He doesn't get very far, though, because him and his shipmates have to jump overboard because their boat becomes, or becomes inflamed, and they swim to shore, not being able to make it very far. 1477, the future emperor of Rome, Maximilian I, married his first wife, Mary of Burgundy. 1478, the, the famous uh, humanist Englishman, Thomas More, was born. Thomas More is the best friend to a man named Erasmus, and we'll find out more about him later. In 1480, the Roman Catholic Church began what is known as the Spanish Inquisition. If you know anything about the Spanish Inquisition, or if you've ever heard Spanish Inquisition, or the Inquisition, it was simply this. There were many people that were convert, converted from Judaism to Islam. And Rome put within the authority of the priests and all of their leaders the authority to investigate, or at least to interrogate, these new converts to see if they were truly believers, or if they were really Judaizers in disguise. We'll skip a few events in history, and we'll travel now back to the place where John Huss was murdered. Germany. Southeast Germany. Iceland, Ben. November 10th, 1483. Iceland, Southeast Germany. Martin Luther is born. November 10th, 1483. His parents, Hans and Marguerite Luther, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, you're going to hear me say Luther and Luther. 
because the German way of pronouncing Luther is Luther. Okay, so if you hear me say Luther, I'm not, I'm not making a mistake. I'm saying it in the way that the German tongue or the German people pronounce Luther. So, Luther. But we'll, we'll go with Luther, just so that there's no confusion, okay? Martin Luther's parents were named Hans and Marguerite Luther. They came from a long line of peasants, and they themselves would be classified as peasants at the time that Martin was born. Martin's father, Hans, don't forget Hans, he was a, a coal miner. He worked in the mines, and he worked hard to become successful. He became successful, and in 1484, the Luther family moved to a place called Mansfield. Now, Hans Luther began to work hard in the, in the mines, so hard that he eventually became an owner of six mines, or six foundries. And in doing so, he elevated the status of the Luther family name. But Hans knew that mining was difficult. And he, the last thing that he wanted for his son, Martin, was to spend the rest of his life working like a dog in the minefields. He wanted something better for his son, Martin. He had a dream for Martin. He wanted Martin to become educated. He didn't want Martin to spend his whole life in the mines. He wanted prominence for the Luther family name. And all of the hopes and dreams of Hans Luther fell on the shoulders of little brother Martin, as he used to like to call himself. His dream, above all else, was that Martin would one day become a lawyer. And in becoming a lawyer, he'd become wealthy. He'd become popular. He'd become famous. And he'd also be able to take care of his parents when they, when they became old. At the age of seven, Martin Luther entered school in Mansfield. At the age of 14, he went, to, he went north to a place called Matterberg where he continued his studies. In 1498, he returned to Eisleben and he enrolled in a school. At that school, he studied grammar, rhetoric, and knowledge, or logic, not knowledge. He later compared his experience to all of these studies that he was going through to being in purgatory or being in hell. It was that bad for him. In 1501, Martin Luther entered the University of Erfurt, and we're gonna hear a lot about Erfurt. And there he received his master's degree, his master's in arts, uh, master's of arts, and he received it in grammar, logic, rhetoric, and metaphysics. The guy was smart. But by this time, Martin Luther began to focus all of the studies on one particular area that he was very interested in, law. Now, was it because his father wanted him to be a lawyer? Maybe so. But there was something about law that really drove Martin Luther. There was something about law that really or inspired him, fired him up. Young Martin was going to make his father proud of him. He was going to become a lawyer, the lawyer that his father always hoped that he would become. And Martin Luther gained a great reputation of being brilliant. I mean, he knew the law inside and out. He knew all of the, the things that a lawyer was supposed to know. But also... Even much more. His father was so proud. All of his hopes, all of his dreams were, were coming to pass in his son, Martin the lawyer. Now don't forget his training. Because his training as being a lawyer is going to be very important as we continue the story. In July of 1505, Martin Luther experienced the first of his many crises in his life. 
It was said that Martin Luther was such a complicated man that he would experience a crisis or a life-changing experience at least every five years. But the first of his life-changing crises or life-changing experiences happened one day as he was walking home from the university. Now, whether he was walking home or whether he was riding a bike or riding a bike, riding a horse, there was no bikes at that time, I don't think. Whether he was walking home or whether he was riding a horse, those things are up for debate. But as Luther is riding or walking home, out of nowhere, without any warning, rain clouds appeared in the sky. And those rain clouds began to produce a violent storm. Probably the most violent storm that Martin Luther had ever seen or experienced in his entire life. Lightning and thunder filled the sky. And Martin Luther was caught in the middle of this storm. Suddenly, as Martin Luther is trying to find some type of shelter, a lightning bolt struck feet, just feet from where he was walking or riding, wherever it was, or whatever it was. And he was terrified. He ran to, to do what I was always taught he shouldn't do. He ran to go hide under a tree. And as he goes and hides under this tree, lightning is peeling and thunder is roaring. And Martin Luther is clinging to a rock. And he's terrified. He believes that God is out to get him. As he's holding on to this rock, he screams out in desperation, Save me, Saint Anne! And I'll become a monk! Why Saint Anne? Why not God? Why not Jesus? We'll find out about that in a moment. But Anne was the mother of Mary. Anne also was the patron minor, or the patron saint for minors. Meaning all the minors, when they prayed, they prayed to Anne. So it was the only saint that Martin Luther knew. So in the moment of trouble, in the moment of desperation, in the moment of, of, of pure fear, he cries out to the only saint that he knew. The storm subsides, and he was saved. Now, some historians believe that Martin Luther made this promise so that he could get out of, of school or get out of purgatory, since he hated school so much. But I'm sure that if Martin Luther wanted to find a better way or something more exciting to do than to be to get out of school, he could have found something more exciting than being a monk, right? So Luther picks himself up. He fulfills his vow and he decides I'm going to be a monk. I have to. I made a promise that I was going to be a monk. When his father finds out that he decides that he's going to go into a monastery and become a monk, he was furious. You want to become a what? A monk? What is a monk? And of course he knew what a monk was. But you want to leave all the riches of being a lawyer? All the respect that will come from you being a man of law and you want to become a poor monk? You're going to leave the riches of a lawyer to be a poor monk? I've been poor all my life. What's the matter with you? He was greatly disappointed. He worked so hard all this time to give this boy a future, and here he is, throwing it all away because of some storm that he was caught in. He's 
throwing your life away, Martin. All of his hopes and all of his dreams apparently gone. But listen, Martin knew this. If he failed to keep his promise to God, that lightning bolt that almost hit him would strike him and he would die. Martin was literally saying or literally putting into practice the law that he had learned. That if he didn't keep his part of the bargain, then he was justly due punishment because he understood the law. Luther found his way to an Augustinian monastery near the University of Erfurt. And he chose that monastery because it was known to be the most demanding of all of the monasteries there in Germany. But the interesting thing about Martin Luther going to this Augustinian monastery is that God was working behind the scenes. And that's something that we have to see through all of these different stories is the providence of God. It was not by accident that Martin Luther had been trained as a lawyer. It was not by accident that Martin Luther had been caught in this storm. It was not by accident that Martin Luther made this promise. And it was not by accident that Martin Luther decides to to join an Augustinian monastery. Why do I say Augustinian? Because the, the Augustinian monastery followed the teachings of a man by the name of Augustine. And if you know anything about Augustine, and anything that we've been talking about Augustine so far, is that Augustine is going to teach Martin Luther something about grace. A man who's been raised to to follow, or taught to follow and adhere to the law, is going to learn something very deep about grace. This is the providence of God. When Luther came to the front door of the monastery, he presented himself to the leaders there, and as they do to every single person who comes into the monastery, they ask, what do you seek? Martin answered, God's grace and your mercy. What a very interesting answer. He's looking for God's grace. He's looking for God's mercy. What, what was going on in his head was a, a severe, a, an almost insane-like sense of guilt. For what? Being a lawbreaker. And he was living his life up until that moment, thinking, God is out to get me, and I need grace. I need mercy. I need someone to save me from myself. Have you seen the connection with you? He was seeking peace. He was seeking relief from the guilt that plagued his mind. So Martin was accepted into the monastery, and he was now called a novice, or a monk in training. He was not yet a monk, he was a monk in training, which they would call a novice, right? Luther vowed to become the best monk the world had ever seen. As a matter of fact, he said this, if anyone was ever going to, be made, if anyone was ever going to make it to heaven through monkery, I was the monk. <laughs> he worked hard. He submitted to all the things that were required of him in order to be accepted or ordained as a monk. Now, Martin Luther comes to a very pivotal point in his life in which he is going to be accepted as one of the brothers of the monastery. He's going to be accepted as a monk. Now, when a person is ordained or accepted as a monk, what they would do is they would present themselves in front of the chancel stairs, or at least before the altar. 
they would then prostrate themselves on the ground with their arms extended, making the form of a cross. Have you ever read in the Psalms where, where David says, I prostrate myself before you? What he's literally doing is laying face down on the floor, face down, with his arms outstretched. While this person was in that position, the process of ordination would begin. Now, this is a, a very ironic moment. Here we have little brother Martin, as he liked to again call himself, laying face down before his examiners in the monastery in which he would be examined as to whether or not they would accept him as a monk or a priest. Now, I say it's ironic because of this. 100 years earlier, a man by the name of John Huss stood strapped to a wooden stake where he would be burned for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me? He would be deemed as a heretic for preaching that the scriptures alone were the only source of absolute truth and absolute authority. John Huss taught that Rome had no authority to forgive sins. John Huss taught that Rome had no right to sell indulgences, which we all know about, right? John Huss taught that the Romes and her monks were all just fleecing the flock. They were hired hands. Huss was burned at the stake. And remember what he says. He says, you may cook this goose. But 100 years hence, or 100 years from now, there will come a swan who see you will not be able to silence. Now... The custom of the priest or the bishops of that day was that when they died, they would be buried underneath the place in which they preached. I can remember uh, when I was a fourth grade teacher going to a mission called La Parisima. And while I was there, we had a great time. If you don't know anything about La Parisima, it's a mission established by the Spanish who came to California. So we walked around all throughout the place there in La Parisima, Longpo. We finally got to the chapel. And when we got to the chapel, the tour guide began to explain how the natives would come in during a certain time and they would be, be ministered to and so on and so forth. And then the, the guy finally ended their talk by saying, and the priest that used to preach here is buried right here. And I was thinking, right where? And she goes, right underneath you. And I jumped back and she goes... Yeah, they're buried right there. And I was looking down like, so there's a guy in, you know, right there, right there. It is said that the bishop who condemned John Huss to be burned at the stake was buried under the platform or pulpit where he used to preach. And that platform was the same platform and Martin Luther was now lying prostrate before his examiners. The saying goes like this, that when Huss said, there will come a swan whom you will not be able to silence, that the presiding bishop probably said, over my dead body. I will say this, there's absolutely no evidence <laughs> that that actually happened. But, as some ministers have said, it is their right to embellish, but there is no evidence to that. But, it's a good story, and 
At least that's what we'd like to say happened, right? So here's Luther. Being accepted into the monastic order, he's now a priest. He's officially a monk. What is the life of a monk like? Prayer. For long periods of time. They would pray at different intervals during the day, and they would pray for hours. And this is something that Martin Luther actually carried on after he became reformed. He, would, he lived his life as, as being a, a great man of prayer. They would commit themselves to fasting. They, they would beat their bodies. It's called flagellation. They would literally beat their bodies and, and, and make it their slave so that they would, would, would essentially deny all of the sinful things that they had going on in their heads. And Luther was very much known for beating his body in such a way that, that was ridiculous. Confessions. Every day, every monk would go to what is called a father confessor. And that they would meet with and confess their sins to that father confessor. Now, Martin Luther's father confessor was a man named Johann von Staplitz. And in the story of the Reformation, <clears throat> Johann is very much forgotten. But we will get back to him. He had an everlasting impact on Martin Luther. Martin Luther said about this man, if it had not been for Dr. Staplitz, I should have sunk into hell. Now, with most monks, here's how their confession went. They would come in and maybe spend a minute or five minutes at the most. And the most common approach that they would give was, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned, as you guys, some of you guys remember. Last night, and listen, they're in a monastery. So last night, I stayed up ten minutes past your Please forgive me. Or last night, you know, I took an extra piece of bread from dinner. Please forgive me. I mean, how much trouble can you get in a monastery, right? So, Martin Luther would meet with his father confessor, and he would wear Dr. Stoppowitz out. He would think about everything that he had done wrong, not just in the last 24 hours, but his entire life. He would sit there, and it is said that there was one time he sat there with Dr. Stoppowitz for six hours, confessing, and then when I was three, remember, you ever watched The Goonies? Remember Chuck? When he, and then when I was three, that's exactly Luther, okay? Yeah, so Luther is just crying out, I did this and I did that. And Stopowitz would say, stop it, right? He would stop, right? Just stop it. You're, you're, what's the matter with you? And he would try to explain God's grace to Martin. He would say, just surrender to God and love him. Lose yourself in him. You're making this too difficult. But Martin... He was tormented by fears and doubts. Why? Well, what was Martin's training in? Law. Martin knew that when one broke the law, there was nothing that they could do to pay that person back that they demanded or that, that, that punishment was demanded. You can't just say, you're okay. Martin in his own mind, which is why he would beat himself, which is why he would go through hours of confession because he was trying to pay back for all of the sins or all the laws that he had broken. Here's the interesting thing. Some of you are still doing that. Some of you are still trying to pay God back or at least still trying to earn salvation. Because you think if you do something, then you'll be okay with God. 
will you do something in order to pay God back? You're making grace ineffective. Martin Luther knew the great commandment. He knew that the great commandment was to love God. Listen, with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he knew he wasn't doing that. Are you? See, he took this more seriously than you and I do. He took this more. I, 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 let me just look at look at me real quick. He took this more seriously than you and I do. Because we look at grace and say, we're fine. Grace covers it. But is the command still not there? He knew the command said to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he knew he wasn't doing that. He took that seriously. We don't. He was not crazy. He just believed these things. He knew he was a lawbreaker, and therefore he deserved and could not escape punishment. Luther said, I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wish that I had never even been created. They, were, they asked him, do you love God? He says, love God, love God. I, sometimes I hate God. Because all I could see is my guilt and my shame. And I knew that Jesus was my judge. People called him crazy. And again, he was not crazy. He just really believed these things. Luther was convinced that when he entered the monastery, all of his fears and all of his worries would disappear. He was searching again for peace of mind. But rather than gaining peace, as he learned more and more about the scriptures, his fear, his guilt, and his worry, they only intensified. Can you imagine that? Coming in with guilt and reading the scriptures and finding out there's more things you're not doing right. He said, I see Christ as a furious judge. This is before he was saved. With the sword of judgment in his hand coming after me. Which is why he didn't cry out to Christ when he was clinging to that rock. Which is why when he's in the monastery he has no peace. Because all he can see is the judge, Christ, coming after him. And Because, again, he saw Christ in this way. He lived his life in fear. He understood his guilt. He understood, again, the law and the penalty that came with it. Now listen, most people want to rationalize their guilt. That's not a big deal. This is why I did it. Or they ignore their guilt. Or they don't even care about their guilt. This should not surprise you, but right now there are millions of people who are not giving a second thought to what will happen when they stand before a holy and righteous God. Because of the law that they've broken. Do you think about that moment? Do you care about that moment? Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you believe in heaven. Let's try the second. Raise your hand if you believe in heaven. Do you think about the moment when you will stand before God 
and upon whose right and upon whose righteousness will you be justified? Upon, upon whose righteousness will you not will you not be judged? Your own. Not only did Martin think about this moment, it was at the forefront of his mind. That's all he could think about. Christ, the great judge that would send him into the eternal abyss of suffering for all the law, all of the laws that he had broken. Well, the time came for Martin Luther to be ordained as a monk, which was already happening, but also to give his first mass as an ordained monk. His father finally accepted the fact that he was not going to have a son who's going to be a lawyer. He has a son who's going to be a priest. And I've got, to, I've got to deal with that. And I'm sure that his wife, Marguerite, had something to do with calming Hans Luther down and helping him to see the good that was in his son becoming a priest. So Martin invited his family to attend his first holy mass as an ordained monk. Hans decided that he was not only going to support his son, Martin, but that he was going to show his son, Martin, off. My son, the priest. I'm going to show him off, right? He invited all of his closest friends and some of his closest business associates to attend the Mass that Martin was going to lead. And afterwards, Hans prepared a party, a celebration for his son, the priest. And I'm sure it was hard for him to say, but my son, the priest. There it is. Martin began the liturgy. And everything was going fine. There was no problems whatsoever. But then the moment came when Martin was going to present the elements or the body and blood. And something was going to happen that he did not expect. As he came to the place where the elements of the mass, the bread and the wine, were being presented, Martin took hold of these two elements And the teachings of Roman Catholicism began to go through his mind, which are this, that that bread literally becomes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that blood is literally the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called so-called transubstantiation. Martin is there holding the, the, the body and the blood of the very one that he is most terrified of. The one that he believes is, is, is just waiting to hammer him with judgment. And he's holding his body. And he's holding his blood. And he stands there, face frozen. Mouth won't say anything. Sweat coming down his face. His eyes are, are, are in shock. He's supposed to pray. He's supposed to consecrate these elements. But nothing would come out of his mouth. He was so terrified. The people are waiting. The priests are waiting. His parents are waiting. Everyone's waiting. Say something, Martin. He couldn't. He couldn't say one word. One of the priests came and, and, and stood in his place, said the prayer, got the mass over with, and Martin is still standing there in shock. His father, Hans, was here. Came all this way, invited all of his friends, planned a celebration, and once again, I'm embarrassed by my unstable, crazy son. He failed his most important hour. His father pulls him aside. What's wrong with you? What is going through your mind? You made a fool out of yourself. You made a fool out of the Luther family name. You think you're called to be a priest? Maybe you were called by the devil. 
Maybe it was the devil calling you. That's exactly what he said. Martin's response was this. Don't you, don't you realize? I was holding in my hands the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I, a sinful man, handle these holy things? How could I speak in the presence of Christ? Again, Martin wasn't crazy. He just really believed these things. Others would go through the motions. No second thought. Martin grabs these things and he can't even move. He's almost like John the Revelator in the book of Revelation who falls like a dead man. The presence of Christ. Martin took these things seriously. When his father left in fury, Martin stayed, fought through his doubts, fought through his, his, his fears. But for Martin... His only desire was to have peace of mind and security in his salvation. As we close, during the medieval period, pilgrimages were a way in which people could visit a particular site, a holy site, and receive a certain blessing for blessing their eyes or having their eyes blessed by, if you guys remember, a relic. Remember what relics were? It was believed and taught by the Roman Catholic Church that if you, if you visited a holy site, that you could receive time off of purgatory. It was also believed that if you were to see or even touch a relic, you could also have time off in purgatory. For those of you youth who have not been in here, purgatory is this. You die and then you go, not to heaven, but you go to this place where you just wait and you got to pay for your sins. <clears throat> Relics were like a piece of hair. From the beard of, of Jesus. You could go and see that. And maybe even touch it. Time off of purgatory and you'd be blessed. A piece of rock where Jesus prayed in the garden. A piece of wood from the cross of Jesus. Etc. Etc. We're going to get into the collections of crazy relics that we will be amassed in the future. But there were two cities that were the most valuable to pilgrimages. Number one, the city of Jerusalem. Number two, the city of Rome. Rome was supposedly the place where you could see the visible church. Rome was the place where you could supposedly see the bones of Peter and the bones of Paul that are supposedly buried there. To go to these places was a great opportunity. Well, in the providence of God. Check this out. Rome requested from the monastery where Martin Luther is serving... That they send two of their best monks to Rome to handle business for the monasteries. Well, the providence of God gets you gets to go. Martin Luther. Right? You get to travel to Rome. You get to go to one of the most holy sites in all of the world. Maybe you can get time off of purgatory. And actually, Martin Luther, because his parents were still living, he wanted to go to Rome on behalf of his parents to get time off of their purgatory. But since they were still alive, he went on behalf of his grandparents. He was so excited. Now, they may have selected Martin Luther to get him out of the monastery so that he, you know, there would be a little bit of peace of mind. If you've ever been in class or you ever remember being in school, there was that one kid, maybe you were that kid, who when they weren't there, everything was like, oh man, this was such an easy day. That was me as a fourth grade teacher. <clears throat> God was in control, and he was leading Martin Luther to a long journey that maybe took 
four to six months to get to Rome on foot. He was ecstatic. Maybe this was the journey that would finally bring him peace. Maybe this is the time when all of his doubts and all of his fears would be erased because he would be able to bless his eyes on a holy relic. He would be able to bless his eyes on a holy uh, grave site. And all of a sudden, maybe all of those fears, all of those worries would go away. But then something happens. As Martin approaches the holy city of Rome, he experiences something that he would have never expected. 